2: How's your week been?
0: It's been busy. I've been on call again. I feel like every time I get on the podcast, I say I've been on call. Isn't that becoming very common? Yes. I'm only supposed to be on call one week a month tops. And it's usually one week every four to five weeks to be specific. And I mean, here lately, I've been on call quite a bit. I So, agree. yeah, I don't know. But um, that's what I've been. I've been busy. I've been skating around. I've been covering my clinic and a virtual clinic. It's It's been busy. So um, anything new happening with you this week? Um,
2: Actually, not really. I I want to be like, oh, I worked a lot, which I did. But it's that's regular. Like, you know, we work. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we work so that we can eat and we eat so that we can live. So that I feel like this is, you know, as long as I'm working, I'm eating. And as long as I'm eating, I'm living. So, yeah, nothing new this week. That's really real. nothing. But you know what? I'm happy because it seems like the weather is turning here. I mean, we've had a couple of like dreary days, but the weather is turning. And this is like my favorite season of the year. Spring, summertime, like once it gets into spring, then I get like souped up for summer. Like and, you know, we're about to have a hot girl summer. So I'm, I'm here for it as the weather changes. I'm getting... hot girl
0: summer. <laughs> I'm here for it, too.
2: I'm going to be out here wild. You hear me? Wild. Everybody, watch out! Wild and back
0: in church, back in church! Hallelujah! <laughs> That's Janine's wild. She gonna be wild, and she gonna be so excited that we can get into the public that she gonna put on her best church hat. Yes. If I had a church hat, I do not. I do not own a church hat. I'm so like you know anti church hat. You know what? We are getting we are getting older. We should rock a hat every now and then. Every now and then, we need to put on a sassy one.
2: Uh, a church hat. If I Girl. have, if I feel like if I have on a church hat, I need on a church suit. Like I need a super tailored, I don't want to say fitted, but I want it to be like, you know, fly. Get you one.
0: I'm not telling you to put on one of those like frumpy, like ruffled up, you know, church yeah. dresses with the two piece with the buttons down the front. You can get souped that, put your church hat to the side.
2: Okay. Maybe we'll have like a, like a after church tea party and I can get all dressed up and fancy I and
0: all I love up. it.
2: I love it. I love tea parties, yeah, that would be awesome. You know what we should do, which I think that would be helpful to everyone, is have etiquette classes. Mm,
0: that would be good. We should have really we have, have etiquette classes. We it's have a them thing. never good. It yes. really
2: bothers me, especially when I go out to dinner. And I'm, this is a a really small tangent on that I'm going to go on a soapbox for two seconds. It really bothers me that basic etiquette is not taught right. Like you don't just come out of the womb with basic etiquette. That's not how this works. Right. Like someone teaches you. I went to classes for that. Right. Like I went to classes to teach you basic things, like things that you would have to encounter in your everyday life, like which fork and knife to use. Like when do you put <laughs> your napkin in your lap when you first sit down at the table? Like things like that. How to write a thank you note when somebody has done something for you. Right. Like all of those things. And I just feel like it's kind of fallen by the wayside somewhere. So I think that we should teach etiquette classes.
0: I get it. So people won't sit down when the world opens back up and drink somebody else's water because you don't know what size your
1: drink is (laughs) supposed to be.
0: That has happened to me several times. I'm like, where did the like, did we not remember the BD Uh, trick? Like, where did my drink go? (laughs) Hello. Just saying.
2: And it's worse when it, it's more embarrassing to me. I almost would rather you drink the water and then I've, I've like politely switched, you know, been like, oh, that was fine, but it's OK. Just give me your water. But it's more annoying to me when people announce it at the table, especially when you're dining with mixed company and they're like, wait, which one is my fork? Which one is my drink? Oh, my goodness.
0: It literally makes my skin crawl. Or when you realize that your drink has been stolen, ask the waiter to bring you another glass of water. Yeah, that's okay to do. I agree. Just saying. But then the person next to you realizes they've stolen your (laughs) glass of water. (laughs) You're right. Yeah. So maybe we'll do that. I think we should. Let's make a note. I like that idea. I really do like that idea. I like that. Yeah. Let's just be out here and be classy.
2: That's all we want. We're not telling you to be bougie. We just want everybody to be classy just because, you know, it's fly right now. You know, class is fly. Just saying. (laughs) All right, Janine, what's on your timeline this week? So, as you know, earlier this month, we lost a legend, the real raw rapper with the distinctive, ferocious voice of Earl Simmons. Better known to those of us who know and love him and grew up with him as DMX. So DMX was a rapper, a writer, an actor, a father, a child of God. DMX had a super successful career that started in 1984 when he would start beatboxing for Reddy Ron. So I think he was about 14 at the time when that happened. And DMX attributes Reddy Ron for introducing him to the best and worst parts of his life. So DMX had a career that spanned two decades with eight studio releases, Over two dozen films, he appeared in even more television shows, and he even showed up in a video game. And let's not forget that he sold 70 million records. 70 million. He was nominated for numerous Grammys, MTV Awards, and American Music Awards, of which he won one for Favorite Hip Hop Artist in 2000. I think that his career was beset with legal problems, baby mama drama, and drug addiction, you know, we saw him in the tabloids time and time again, whether it was for being arrested or, you know, animal cruelty, or he was going to jail for um, child support. There were numerous times that, you know, his legal issues and his personal issues kind of overshadowed his career. We could go on discussing the cultural impact of DMX for days, but I'd like to focus on something else everyone is focusing on how he impacted the culture and I'd like to focus on how the culture failed him. So DMX had an extremely tumultuous childhood. He was born to two teen parents. His mother, um, he was his mother's second child. So by the time his mother was 19, she had given birth to two children, him being the second. His father split Um, When he was super young and subsequently he was forced to endure abuse from both his mother and his mother's boyfriends. He talks about how his childhood, you know, was super abusive. And um, he talks about how rather than enduring the abuse, he would take to the streets at night and he would just wander the streets at night. They said that he would sleep in like Salvation Army bins. And he said that he started befriending stray dogs you know, all basically so that he just didn't have to go home. So he preferred, you know, living in the streets, sleeping in Salvation Army bins, befriending stray dogs rather than going home to the abuse that he would have to face. During his childhood, he did spend some time in some, like, children's homes, which it's really unclear as to whether he was dropped off at the children's homes or whether he was forced to go into the children's homes. But in fifth grade, he was kicked out of school. So he eventually was sent to a juvenile detention center, and there are conflicting reports. Some say that his mother went and dropped him off and some say that basically a judge deemed his mother unfit and forced him into the juvenile detention center. He met Reddy Ron and so Reddy Ron was super impressed with his skills and kind of took DMX under his wing. So DMX kind of looked up to Reddy Ron. You know, Reddy Ron was twice his age. DMX kind of saw him as a mentor. But this is possibly the best and worst encounter of DMX's life. Reddy Ron not only introduced DMX to the professional world of hip hop, but he also introduced him at the age of 14 to crack. See, at 14, while DMX was troubled, he didn't do drugs, he didn't drink, he didn't even smoke cigarettes. But this man that he looked up to laced a blunt with crack and gave it to DMX to smoke. And in DMX's words, he said, his brain changed instantly. While DMX went on to become a successful rapper and icon, he also had a very public struggle with addiction, including numerous run-ins with the law for drugs and other related charges. In 2016, DMX was found unresponsive in the parking lot of a Ramada Inn. And most recently on April 2nd, 2021, DMX was rushed to the hospital with an apparent drug overdose of which he never recovered. There's something really interesting that I saw that Russell Simmons posted. It was a touching video. And in the video, he talks about how DMX saved Def Jam. Def Jam was in a rut and, you know, he met DMX and DMX saved Def Jam. In the video, he speaks about how this is a teachable moment and how this moment taught him that he needs to reach out to others who might need help and take more responsibility for what we see happening in front of us. And so as Russell Simmons was kind of... Um, sharing the the feelings and the the what he learned out of this situation I kind of saw that as a much broader teachable moment for all of us it's one of those things that I kind of struggle with like I've seen it we've seen this time and time again and this kind of hits home for me because of the industry that I work in but I see how we use up our celebrities and kind of overlook Um, the illnesses and issues that they're facing because we just want them to perform and entertain for us. So, I mean, everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Michael Jackson, to Whitney Houston, to Pimp C, even Rick James, ODB. I mean, we've seen this time and time again, where there are pretty evident struggles, but we kind of just overlook it because they're still able to perform. So this bigger teachable moment for us is, you know, In life, we kind of just have to take the time to say this person may need help and they might not always be able to ask for the help. So DMX's life was probably as rough and rugged as his voice was, but I feel like the systems that were set up to support him. Failed. They failed him at every level. They failed him at the familial level. They failed him in school. They failed him. His mentor failed him. The prison rehabilitation system failed him. And ultimately, the industry failed him. But Russell Simmons said it best it's a teachable moment. And let this serve as a reminder to all of us that addiction is an illness just like any other illness, right? And we really need to and by we, I mean a collective we, we really need to start treating it as such. Stop looking at addiction as that problem over there or something that people chose to do. Addiction is a real illness. And that's something that we need to focus on and make sure that we are not ostracizing those who suffer with this illness, but rather embracing them and helping them get through it.
0: I think that for us, I don't know if we knew he was dealing with addiction. I don't know if we knew at that time, his family situation, everything like that. Honestly, it wasn't until watching the Rough Riders documentary that I had no idea. And, um, you know, you heard all of this, you know, oh, DMX on drugs. Oh, DMX is in rehab. Oh, DMX and Ian will fix my life. You know, you heard all of those things. Much later, for me anyway, much later, um, in after all of his fame and success, he's, he's still successful, but I mean, after his prime is when we heard it. So, um, some of it, even with when he went on Y'all and fix my life was sort of shocking. Like, cause I was like, Oh, I had no idea that he had a problem with drugs, like oblivious. Um, even as an adult didn't know that that, um, so yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, he was failed, but you know, that goes back to, you know, you have this teen mom that also was failed and had no support. It's like a cycle that keeps continuing. And, and then he's, he's there. He has money, but he, money doesn't make you successful necessarily. Money can't solve medical issues and mental problems. It just can't. And drug addiction should be treated as if it is a health condition, just like any mental health disease. Addiction is a mental health disease. It's an illness, just like, hypertension is a, is a illness. And so we should treat it as such. So I'm surprised that no one in his life stepped in to intervene and say, you have got to, if you're on my level, you've got to go to rehab, like, I'm going to encourage and push you to go there. And the thing that's very shocking is Reddy Ron introducing him to crack. I mean, it was Reddy Ron uh, on crack because who laces a blunt for a 14 year old? Like, what kind of morals do you have? This is a 14 year old. Like, who gives a 14 year old, even if it's not laced? We know that weed is a gateway drug. Like, why would you give drugs to a 14 year old? You know, in the documentary, Reddy Ron basically denied that he introduced him to drugs at all. He said he did not do that, but really? Cause why would he lie about that?
2: Yeah. I watched a interview with DMX and he, I mean, it was very recent, right? I don't, I don't know. I'm, and by very recent, I mean within the last couple of years and he becomes emotional talking about it. He becomes emotional speaking of it because he said that, you know, that was who he looked up to. And then he said, he realized at that point that he couldn't trust him and he becomes emotional about it because it's almost like he felt like his choice, which it was, was taken away from him. He didn't have the option to say, yeah, I'm going to try this weed, but I don't, I don't want this crack. Um, And it, it, and it doesn't, it, let me be clear. It's not clear as to whether it was actual weed or it was a cigarette that he laced either way, lacing anything and, Taking the choice away from someone to partake in drugs is unfair. And, you know, I'm sure that Reddy Ron will deny this until the day that he closes his eyes. But, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like like at every turn where DMX had a chance to have an easy go at it, he just didn't you know, at home, at school. He was kicked out of school. He went to prison or juvenile detention facilities. They say that he ran away from them and then was forced to go back. I mean, it was just a hard, rough life for him. It really was. It's just sad on
0: a lot of levels.
2: If you see someone that has a problem with addiction, whether they're a functional addict or not, please, please, please get them help. Please. I beg of you, please get them help.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I have... Several people that are either alcoholics or have been on and off drugs. And it is hard to help people. I mean, it's, it's hard. And I don't think there's any like right way to help people. And so I don't want to, I don't want you to think we're blaming you if you like, I don't really know what to do. I mean, help by being there and supporting and, you know, encouraging them to seek the help that they need. And that may be also, Finding resources, but they have to be the, the people to actually go to those resources. I mean, you can't force somebody to go to rehab. They have to be ready to do it. That's the first step. You have to be ready and know that you have a problem, um, in order to get help. If you go to rehab and you like, you say you don't have a problem, they can't help you because you don't have a problem. So they have to be ready and admit that, but you know, be there by supporting. And, um, I know we're going to talk through some scenarios, um, in terms of, everyday um, situations that you, our listeners, um, have dealt with. Um, but I just want to add that like, we're not blaming you, but definitely encourage um, and be there as a source of support. All right, Janine, let's talk through some scenarios now. Okay, so the first scenario reads, um, Nicole and Janine, I've been dating my current boyfriend for a little over a year now. We met on Match.com and I fell for him quickly. We talked for about a month before finally meeting in person. We met for our first date at a restaurant called Sylvia's. We had a good time, but now that I think about it, he knocked down six or seven beers at the table. I'm a lightweight, so I only had one. I didn't think anything about it, Because at the time we were there so long. We were literally there at the restaurant for almost six hours. We continued to date and we fell in love quickly. I think our early connection made me overlook the fact that he would drink to the point that he would occasionally have hangovers. And he would sometimes smell like weed. He would show up late to different events. And sometimes he'd be a little tipsy. Again, I didn't think this was a problem because he was always upbeat, nice to my family and never got angry. It became a problem to me when he picked me up from work and opened a can of beer while driving. He popped open the beer like it was a Coke and I lost it. Since that time, he's cut way back on drinking but has a beer every now and then. I've asked him to go to Alcoholics Anonymous but he refuses saying he doesn't have a problem. What should I do in this situation? I love him, but I don't wanna be naive and end up with a closet alcoholic forever. I wanna help him get the help he needs. Any advice is appreciated.
2: As we've stated, the first step in getting help is admitting that you have a problem. So he's still in denial that he has a problem. Let me tell you something. If you are drinking beer or any alcoholic beverage, like it's a Coke, it's very likely that you have a problem. And just because he's still functional does not mean that he does not have an alcohol problem or an addiction problem, because there's something in there that says that he does some weed. So You know, we don't, whatever your opinion is about weed, one way or the other, we do understand that it can be a gateway to other drugs, right? So the one thing that I can say, and this is, you know, something that someone told me, is that, you know, if you're unsure as to someone, if someone has a problem, If they keep drinking, you'll find out. You will find out if they have a problem. It sounds like you're kind of hesitant because he seems to be functional. You know, he's able to drive you to work. It seems that he's keeping a job. Like everything else seems to be pretty normal. But this drinking. And I think that you're you have every right to be concerned because not only is he drinking, but it's clear that he's drinking and driving. And this now puts your life in harm. Right. Not only your life, but other people's lives at harm because The moment that you get behind the wheel after having just one alcoholic beverage, I don't care what anybody says, it's dangerous. It's already dangerous enough to drive a car, let alone driving while you're intoxicated. I'm not going to tell you to leave your boyfriend because addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol, is a very real disease and people need a support system to work their way through it. I appreciate the fact that you're saying that your boyfriend has cut back on his drinking. I do appreciate that. But let me tell you something. Once you're an alcoholic, you are always an alcoholic. You just are a recovering alcoholic. And just because he's cut back does not mean that he stopped drinking. I didn't hear anything in the letter that said he stopped drinking. And even if he quit cold turkey, I'm of the belief system is if you did not work the steps, if you did not work the steps of Alcoholic Anonymous or go to recovery or whatever it is, you're just a dry drunk. You still have the problem. You still have the disease because alcoholism and drug addiction are chronic diseases. You will have them forever. You still have the disease. You just are not. It's just not a flare up at this point. Like if we look at it like that, it's you're not having a flare up. So you can kind of control the amount of alcohol that you're consuming. But when that flare up comes, it could be dangerous or deadly. I just think it's sad. I feel bad for you. I say be there for him, you know, because he probably really does need the support system. But don't continue to put your life in harm's way and know what it is that you're dealing with. So be realistic about your own expectations. You are dealing with an addict. That's just it, it just is what it is. What do you think, Nicole?
0: So um I know we were talking about support, support your family, make sure that um, you are encouraging them to get the help that they need. But you've been with this man for a year. So for me, I'm not saying you should break up with him, but I would have a come to Jesus and say, listen, I feel that you have a problem and this is why. You are drinking and driving, and you're drinking and driving with me in the car, but you're also drinking and driving with you in the car. You are endangering your own life. You putting down too much beer. I'm seeing you tipsy all the time or drunk or you have a hangover. These are the reasons that this is a problem. And you need to take some time and we need to take some space between us so that you can figure out if you agree that you have a problem. And if you agree that you have a problem and you want to get help, then we can stay together. But if you're not going to get help, I cannot be in this toxic relationship and I will remove myself. Because realistically, that staying there and saying, okay, he says he doesn't have a problem, so I'm going to just roll with that is a form of enabling him. So if you're going to just sit there and stay in the relationship and he's in denial and you're like, okay, well, okay, I'm going to accept that he says that he doesn't have a problem, so I'm just going to roll with it. And then every time he's tipsy, you're bringing it up and up and up. That's a toxic relationship. He has a problem and you're enabling him by staying in that situation. And once you don't leave, he knows that you're not going to leave. You've acknowledged that you had a problem with it. He says he doesn't. You stay. And then what happens? He continues to do what he needs to do. He's going to continue to drink. He's going to continue to drive. He's going to continue to be tipsy. He's going to continue to have hangovers because you have stayed around and tolerated that. So you either have a come to Jesus with him. He either is going to get on the boat or get off the boat. One of the two. But you don't have to stay here. You can get his family involved, try to encourage him to get help, especially if you're leaving and you really want to get help, talk to his family, have his family, encourage him to get help. But you don't have to stay. You're not married to this man. You're not obligated to stay there. And I would hate for him to really start developing a problem where his behavior starts to change and it becomes dangerous. So I would say, come to Jesus. If he doesn't agree with you and he doesn't get help, get out.
2: I agree. I'm going to go on to our next letter. This letter actually has a title again, and it says my mother-in-law's drug addiction is about to end my marriage. It says, hi, ladies, I really need your help. My husband and I live with my mother-in-law. We moved in because she was getting older and my husband started noticing a rapid decline in her health after my father-in-law passed away. Once we moved in, we discovered that my mother-in-law abuses prescription drugs. She is up and down and all over the place. And sometimes she stays in her room without eating for days at a time. I feel like it's gotten out of control. She has her doctors and the other family members completely fooled. My husband and I moved across the country to help her because she always seemed to be sick. And we didn't know that she was abusing drugs. I feel like this is getting extremely out of control Because she now has pill bottles that have other people's names on them. I want to do what's best for my mother-in-law, but I'm starting to feel angry about the whole situation. The house is constantly in turmoil because of my mother-in-law's lies and manipulation, and her behavior is becoming increasingly erratic. I'm beginning to resent my husband for all of this. What should I do, Sabrina?
0: So the problem I hear is... I understand your mother-in-law has a prescription drug problem. She's an older woman. I don't know why she's on these prescriptions. I'm not sure. It sounds like she maybe she has a chronic pain issue. I don't know. And I also did not hear which prescriptions she was addicted to. I'm going to assume... It's either an opioid or like a Percocet situation. That's my assumption when people say addicted to prescription drugs. So, um, so sometimes there are reasons that people are on drugs, meaning if she has an anxiety disorder, there's a reason that she should not come off of those medicines. If she, um, has an opioid abuse and she's on something like Suboxone or Subutex, um, or methadone, those are not considered drugs of abuse. They are prescription for maintenance so that eventually you can come off of those uh, medications. However, some people with chronic pain have to stay on those medicines for years and years and years because they actually do have pain. But what it does is it maintains you in such a way that you're not going to have these quick highs and then you can withdraw if you you know you know miss a dose. So that's why it's maintenance. They're longer acting drugs so that you don't have symptoms of withdrawal. So it it really depends on if she is on a prescription drug because of maintenance, um because of a disorder or if she really is abusing drugs and she's walking around high and she's buying them off the street like so there's different scenarios and I think maybe because you think Hey, I don't see her eat and she's in the, in, in a room all the time. Like maybe probe a little bit deeper to really make sure that she's abusing the drug. Well, it says that she has pill bottles
2: with other people's names on them.
0: Oh, okay. The other people's names on it is, 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 okay. 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 That's definitely, uh, Loki, you you've been stealing them or you've been or you've been um purchasing them. I missed that part, Janine. Okay, well then you definitely she has um she definitely has a problem. So in that case, what I would be doing is talking to my husband and saying, Listen, your mom needs help. We need to sit down and talk to her about her needing help because I can't live like this. That's number one. Number two, when are we getting our own place? Because we can't be in your mama's house demanding that your mama do stuff. She could kick us out. She could put us out. We moved in her house. So my next step would be, we need to get our own place. Otherwise, if she doesn't get help and we don't have our own space, I gotta bounce. I gotta go somewhere else and I'm gonna take our kids or whomever came with us, with me, because I'm not gonna have them subjected to people that are abusing prescription pain medicine because a high person, you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know what a high person is going to do. And you don't know, and not in terms of doing to you, but what doing to themselves. You don't want to walk in and find somebody high and passed out or overdosed You have kids, you don't want them to find, uh, their grandmother, you know, like that. So you need to get her, get her together and tell her that she needs to seek help. And if she doesn't, y'all need to remove yourself from that situation. And I know that's his mama. He wants, he may be in denial himself, um, that his mom has a problem. But again, it's either get on or off the boat. You have got to remove yourself from those types of situations. People have to recognize when they need help. You can basically nudge people and say, Hey, And be nice about it. Don't go in, you know, one, talk to your husband first. I will let my husband talk to his mom. I will talk to my husband first. But don't go in being belligerent, like your mama got a problem and we gotta go. No, go in really with a sense of, you know, I care about your mom and I'm seeing habits that are alarming to me. Did you know that she is using other people's prescriptions? Did you know that? Did you know that it's illegal for her to do that? Like we need to get her some help. So maybe you should talk to her so that she can get some help. I would go about it from from that angle, talk to her husband and then have your husband talk to him. Hopefully y'all two can get on the same page and touch and agree so that he can then go and talk to his mom and encourage his mom to get help. And then y'all are grown people. You need to move out. You need to get your own space. That way, if she doesn't want to get the help she needs, you're not subjected to her, you know, belligerence all the time.
2: What do you think? So I don't know about moving out. And the reason why I say that is because they moved because they said that she was getting increasingly ill. And it seems based on the letter that they're implying that she got ill because of the prescription addiction, right? I would like to know also why she's taking the pills. The only like significant thing that I can see that could have caused her to spiral out of control based on the letter is that her husband passed away. Right. So it sounds like there's a steady decline from that point. And I think that there is something deeper to this. Right. Because clearly she got the prescription drugs because of something. So she probably needs them in some way, shape or form. And prescription addiction is a little tricky because Like Nicole said, there's a reason why they were prescribed, right? There's a reason why this person, why your mother-in-law is on these drugs. So you can't just cut her off cold turkey because she likely needs the drugs, right? I think that the deeper issue is what we have to deal with, right? She's probably still grieving the loss or hasn't properly grieved the loss of her husband. And subsequently, she started spiraling out of control. So I think that therapy you know, maybe staging an intervention of some, some sorts. She, they say that, you know, she has the family confused. Maybe you bring the family in and tell them, Hey, this is what's going on. Lay everything out on the table. She's taking drugs. She's taking drugs from other people's names. We don't know what it is, you know, go through an intervention and then, you know, let's be very realistic. It's likely that these are narcotics, right? Like I think that we, it's safe to say that the drugs that you are concerned about You know, based on the letter, and you did not say that, but I think that it's safe to make the assumption that these are some sort of opioid or narcotic drug. And with that being said, I think that at least reaching out to resources in reference to, you know, narcotic addiction would be helpful. Narcotics Anonymous, they have, you know, literature about recovery and, you know, the 12 step method. And that might be a place to start. Look into those kinds of things because that will not only help you have the tools to deal with your mother-in-law, but it will also help you have the tools to know how to process it for yourself and process it, you know, help your husband process it for himself because it's a really difficult situation finding out that your parents have an addiction. I've been there. And It's it's hard and it's hard to come to grips with. And you don't really want somebody telling you, you know, your parents have an addiction because they're your parents. Right. So your your husband is going through something, too. So be there for your husband and, you know, support him because he's just coming to this reality, too, and probably trying to come to grips with it. But. Also, don't ignore the fact that your mother-in-law has a real problem, a real illness. And in in this case, two real illnesses, whatever caused her to get prescribed the medication and now this addiction. So get help. Like, you know, maybe you talk to her doctors, talk to her doctors and say, hey, this is what we're seeing. Is there something that we can do? Get everybody on board, the doctors, the family, you know, therapists, all of the support systems that you can find try to get those support systems all on the same page and come together and create one big support system for your mother-in-law. But putting forth all of the effort that you can before you kind of just throw away your marriage and your mother-in-law, I think I think that everyone deserves to try.
0: I, I'm I'm not saying throw away your mother-in-law, but I'm I am going to stand by and say I don't think you need to necessarily live with somebody. And I think the only good thing from you guys moving in is that you see that the reason that she's declining and not as functional is because she has a problem. I don't think that as an as a as a daughter-in-law, you should stage an intervention. I still feel like you've got to go to your husband first. I don't think that it should be like thrown at the whole family. Cause I think that people will shut down and get defensive if you have not gone to them first to at least tell them what the problem is instead of, you know, forming this intervention. I think you got to get your husband on the same page with you so that y'all can touch and agree. And then he can talk to his wife. I'm not his wife, his uh, mother about her problem, because I I think that there's a role for the, the her son and a role for her daughter-in-law. And I don't think that that's necessarily going to be well received if you as a daughter-in-law are staging that intervention. Now, if your husband talks to your mother-in-law and she's like, oh, I have no issue. Well, then that's when we may need to bring everybody together and stage an intervention and have her come in and have somebody come in and say, listen, this is what your family is saying. This is why they're saying it. Do you not see that this is a problem? That's when you may need to bring some outside people and other family support in to let them know that, hey, We are here to support you. We are not angry at you. We are not accusing you of being a bad person, but we are concerned about your health. And we do think that you need to get help because you have a problem and we need you to understand that you have a problem. But that has to be taken delicately in a stepwise approach. Again, to save your marriage, nothing you should let break your marriage. And if that means that you have to remove yourself from that house and y'all go and check on her every day, then do that. If that means that you need to get somebody, hire somebody to come in and be with her, because I don't know how old your mother-in-law is. When I think about my mother-in-law, she's in her late 60s. When my husband thinks about his mother-in-law, my mom is young. She's in her 50s. So I'm not really sure how old your mother-in-law is if she would need help around the house, how she's deteriorating. But if she's deteriorating to the point she's not functioning, hiring help to come in may save your marriage and keep you sane so that you're not the person that's the help, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I I do think that you you have to help find ways to help your in-laws, but you also have to make sure that your marriage is healthy and strong enough and you have an outlet for you as well. I agree.
2: I think that that, let me um, clarify, because I don't think that I made that clear. But I think that all of this needs to be done as you and your husband need to do this together. I think that Nicole is a 100 percent right. Like you cannot just go in and say like, oh, I'm having an intervention. You and your husband need to get on the same page. And once you all make that decision, you all need to move forward together. I reread the letter and I, I said, you know, I heard in the letter that you or read in the letter that you said that you feel angry. That's a very real emotion. Anger is a very real emotion. And it's, and it's you rightfully so, right? Like you've uprooted your life. You've moved across the country. It's a lot to deal with. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like, let's be honest, this is a lot. So before even all of this, there might be some therapy that you might need to go seek on your own to deal with what your feelings are and your emotions are. And understand that some of these feelings that you're feeling, are you know completely correct you're allowed to feel whatever it is that you feel but allowing it to affect your marriage is where that's not fair it's not fair to you it's not fair to your husband but you know get your mother-in-law the help but get you know get your you and your husband some help as well because this is a lot to deal with and it's just a lot emotionally to handle
0: (sighs) I agree. I I, I agree. I, I bet that she's angry and she's about to start feeling resentment. Absolutely. Like I didn't sign up for none of this. I did not sign up for none of this. Yep. But like your if husband I didn't have married either. This joker he didn't, but it's his stuff. You're right, but, but it's his stuff. But he can't control it. He, he couldn't predict it. He can, though. You're right. But she she can. And so it, when you start to feel resentment, it's over. Yeah, you're so right. So before you get there, you're right, Janine. She needs to go get some counseling. All right, Janine, what did you learn new this week? So um, I did
2: learn uh, a couple of things. So Narcotics Anonymous, which is the equivalent to Alcoholics Anonymous for people that have drug addiction. There are 70,000 Narcotics Anonymous meetings in 144 countries, and that was of 2018. So I'm sure that there are quite a few more by now. So there are if you feel like someone in your family needs help or you need help, there is a Narcotics Anonymous meeting somewhere close by or an Alcoholic Anonymous meeting somewhere close by that can help you. And I also learned that according to DrugFree.org, um, there are 23.5 million Americans suffering with alcohol or drug addiction. Let me repeat that. 23.5 million okay that's a lot and one in ten of those which is only about 2.6 million are actually receiving treatment so that means that there are almost 20 million people out there over 20 million people that are not receiving help for their addiction
0: so let that sink
2: in that's crazy
0: So, um, I learned that according to addictioncenter.com, um, black people excluding Afro Caribbeans have lower rates of drug addiction compared to Caucasians, which for the opioid epidemic, I knew that, but I did not know that rate overall. Um, blacks have lower opioid addiction and overdose rates, um, likely because doctors prescribe them less often to us, right? Because they perceive Black people as not having as much pain as our Caucasian counterparts. So it's a good thing that we don't get them prescribed as much, but it's bad because there are people that need the pain medicine and they're being discriminated against and they don't get treated. So yes, we have lower rates, but if you think about, the overdoses from fentanyl, our fatal overdose rate is higher in the Black community, with the largest annual increase in rates from 2011 to 2016 being 140.6% per year. Mm. And sadly, it's because Black people have less access to buprenorphine, which is the treatment for opioid abuse and addiction. So um, yeah, we are more likely to be fatal. It's sad. All right, so the motivational moment for this week comes from Confucius. And it says, it does not matter how slowly you go as long as you do not stop. So if you've been fighting an addiction, whether it's food, drugs, an unhealthy relationship or whatever your challenge is, do not stop. Take it one day at a time and don't look back. Until we meet again, pray, work, slay. And show off your melanated excellence. Bye. Bye.
1: Oh, That's Deep Black Women Conversations is produced by Nicole Lee Plenty and Janine Brunson-Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Get the Oh, That's Deep Black Women Conversation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or where you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us. You can follow Oh, That's Deep Black Women Conversations on IG at Oh, That's Deep BWC. Oh, That's Deep Black Women Conversations